0: Hello everybody, nice to be with you again. My name is Michael Millerman, millermanschool.com. Continuing our reading and commentary on Martin Heidegger's basic concepts. Moving on now to the third division, being and man. If you haven't yet and you'd like to, you can watch the videos on the introduction, the first division and the second division. We've been making nice progress and I thought we might as well continue. So here we go, third division being and man, the ambivalence of being and the essence of man, what casts itself toward us and is cast away. As we did in the previous videos, I'm going to read, stop, comment, elucidate and all of that and I welcome your comments as well as your activity in the chat which from time to time I'll throw up on screen. When it was said that being is the most intelligible, most said, most forgotten, in other words, in the division that we just finished in the previous live stream, wasn't something named that pertains solely to being insofar as it stands subsequently in relation to our understanding, to our saying, to our forgetting. When we said being is the most said, the most forgotten, the most common, weren't we relating in each case being to us, to ourselves? All these things that belong to us don't they belong to what man or the human subject is provided with so that everything that comes into relation with them is immediately given a subjective tint? Yet we are supposed to think being itself, therefore being in itself, therefore we're supposed to think being objectively. So Heidegger is saying we're trying to get clear on being, but we're thinking it in relation to ourselves. Aren't we subjectivizing it? Aren't we dragging the object of our thought, being, into ourselves in a way that muddies the waters? However, is it true, Heidegger continues, that everything brought in relation to man and determined from this relation is thus already subjective? And if so, why is the subjective immediately burdened with suspicion? The subjective is only where there is a subject. But the question remains whether man is only a subject pure and simple, whether his essence exhausts itself in being a subject. Okay, those of you who know some Heidegger, you may know he has what you could call loosely for our purposes, a a criticism of the view that the human being is properly interpreted as an individual subject. Rather, Heidegger offers the presentation of man as Dasein, and that gives us different access into what we are and how we relate to the world, our experience of it, our thinking about it, than does the interpretation of the human being as a subject. So that's what he's talking about here. The subjective is only where there is a subject, but the question remains to repeat whether man is only a subject pure and simple, whether his essence exhausts itself in being a subject. Perhaps only the modern and most modern man is a subject. And perhaps this is due to particular reasons which do not at all guarantee the fact that historical man, in whose history we stand ourselves, was necessarily and always in essence a subject and must remain a subject. In other words, Remember from the first introduction, if we are somehow intimately related to the Greek beginning of philosophy, then the fact that we now interpret ourselves as subjects in no way guarantees that at the beginning we did so, or that every phase in that history we did so, rather it could just be the most modern interpretation of man, Heidegger says here. In addition to all of this, we would have to discern what it means that man is supposed to be a subject. How is it that a being could only be objective precisely for the man who is a subject? So he's getting us to start to think here. What is? What do we even say when we want something to be objective? Objective for whom? Objective for you. So why does objectivity automatically relate to subjectivity? How are we to think about that if we have an objection to the fact that thinking being in relationship to ourselves has subjectivized it how is it that a being could only be objective precisely for the man who is a subject how is it that in the latest modernity an objectivity is supposed to be reached that history has never known before only in modernity have we penetrated into the essence of objectivity maybe for example through modern methods of science and this only because man has become a subject. Subjectivity surely does not mean the exclusion of truth. However, we might put this question and answer it, Heidegger continues, the named determinations of being, most common, most unique, most empty, most full, okay, those ones, uh, as he puts it here, according to which it is called the most understood, the most said, the most forgotten, remain nevertheless unequivocally relative to man, and human modes of comportment. Understanding, we are the ones who understand. Saying, we are the ones who speak. Forgetting, we are the ones who forget. Being is thought in relation to man and conceived according to a human shape. It is taken, quote-unquote, anthropomorphically and thereby humanized. We do not come into relation with being itself, according to this objection that Heidegger is expressing, but at best with what we humans represent to ourselves as being. But let us leave this difficulty aside and allow the danger to persist that instead of thinking being itself, we everywhere only humanize being. This humanization of being could still grant us a glimpse into being itself, although a murky one. However, a far greater reservation arises before us that threatens to annihilate the entire reflection upon being we are now attempting. So the first thing we overcame hey, Heidegger, when you talk about being, being forgotten or understood, you're talking about human modes of subjectivity. And therefore, you're dragging the object of your thought being through the mud of human subjectivity. And how can you see clearly if you have such mud everywhere? Set that aside because we don't know yet what it means, the subjectivity of the subject, the objectivity of the object, or whether it's even warranted to interpret the human being as a subject. So instead, Heidegger moves on here to something else, which to repeat threatens to annihilate the entire reflection what is that we say being is the empty is the emptiest is a keeping silent is the most intelligible is a surplus being is indeed does being not become irrevocably a being in this saying when we address it as something that is so the pen is my cup is the phone is the camera is the computer is being is Haven't I just put it as one among the members of the set by saying that it is? Haven't I, as it were, entified the being, made it one of the beings? Does it not become what it is supposed to be differentiated from? It becomes one of the beings, even though it's supposed to be differentiated from beings. We may multiply assertions about being into infinity, but they become untenable. At the first step, because an assertion in the form of being is already destroys what we want to apprehend being as distinct from beings but if being immediately appears to us as what this and that is can it ever at all become manifest as being hadier asks regardless of whether we in representing being lend it human characteristics or not can we even talk about it or is talking about it representing it and is representing it putting it into the realm of other beings in other words putting it into the set of things so to speak whereas we're trying to distinguish it from the things from beings Okay? Everywhere and every time, wherever and whenever being is named, only beings are immediately meant. So I hope you see the problem. And some of you know, there are traditions of mystical thought, for example, that in treating God, they say, well, we just won't assert anything positive of God. Our way to God will be through negation. And that way you never even have to say that God is, because you don't want to circumscribe God by imbuing him with a being or making him one of the beings. So that's, there's a, there are kind of theological and mystical parallels to this type of reflection that you may know and may be familiar with. But here, let's continue with Heidegger's concern. From here, it looks as though the natural way of thinking attains its full justification. Natural in quotation marks. Ordinary opinion sticks to beings and declares that being so-called is an abstraction, a way of speaking that corresponds to nothing and makes fools of all thinkers who chase after it. I'm sure you must have heard that a million times before in your life if you are one of these fools with an interest in being, like I am. It subsequently becomes clear how far the neglect of being and the forgetting of its question-worthiness perhaps follow from a genuine insight. That in respect to being in general, nothing serious can be asked. Thus, it remains true. Only beings are. Okay, everybody, I assume, sees the problem clearly. You don't want to say being is. It drags it into the realm of beings, therefore only beings are. To be sure, only beings, but what, Heidegger continues, is with them. They beings are, but what does it mean they are? What does being consist of? What is the proposition beings are supposed to mean if we heed the above mentioned misgivings, cast being aside as an abstraction, even obliterate it, and then only allow beings to count? Then only beings remain. But what does it mean that beings remain? Does it mean anything other than that beings and only beings are? And if we want only to hold fast to beings, to avoid the abstraction of being, to remain steadfast and exclusively with beings and accordingly say that beings are beings, then we also still say the is and thus still think in terms of being. You can't not think being. No matter how, much you don't want to be abstract, no matter how much you do want to be concrete. Being, Heidegger says, continuously overtakes us as that which we can never not think. Somehow we can only pay attention to whether or not we're thinking it, but it's always there. So we stand between two equally unavoidable limits. On the one side, we immediately make being into a being when we think it and say of it being is, thus disavowing the proper work of being we cast being away from us. On the other side, however, we can never disavow being and the is wherever we experience a being. So somehow in our talking about it, we're doing two things. We're pushing it away from what it is into the realm of beings by saying being is. And at the same time, always encountering the fact that being is more than beings. This push and pull. How should a being be in each case of being for us without our experiencing it as a being, without our experiencing it respect to its being. I just want to acknowledge for those of you who are watching or will watch I know that it is very repetitive to hear Heidegger talk about being, beings, being of beings. It's not the easiest thing to listen to, to read, and to think about. We're operating on the assumption that Heidegger has something valuable to tell us despite its apparent repetition despite its apparent abstraction and therefore it's like you want to get fit you go to the gym even though it sucks so here you may not want to hear the word being and beings a hundred times in a row and yet we're working on the presumption that there's a light at the end of the tunnel we're going to get something out of the exercise so continuing with that little motivational speech being has already cast itself over us and toward us being Casting itself toward us and cast away by us. Cast away by us. This looks like a contradiction. However, we do not wish to capture what opens up here in a formal schema of formal thinking. Remember, we're not just moving concepts around, even though it may look like that at times. Everything would merely become weakened in its essence and essenceless under the appearance of a paradoxical formula. Remember what Heidegger said in the introduction, if you were here on that video, and if not, I'll remind you. He told his students, as we go through this lecture, you have to be prepared for something like essential transformation, a conversion of your soul, a turning around of your perspective, okay, the lightning striking, something happens that shifts the way you take all of this in a radical way. So that's what he said at the outset of the lecture. And as he goes through the lecture, we have to keep that in mind. What's he aiming at with all of these considerations? So it looks like a contradiction, but we're not going to operate with it like a formal contradiction. It's not merely schematic or logical. Everything would become weakened in its essence and with essence less under the appearance of the paradoxical formula. On the other hand, we must attempt to experience that located between both limits, we are placed into a peculiar abode from which there is no way out. Okay? You must find yourselves placed into this peculiar abode from which there's no way out. But in finding ourselves placed into this impasse, we also become aware that such an extreme impasse could perhaps stem from being itself. Indeed, without exception, the guide words indicate a peculiar ambivalence of being. So is it just us? Is it a problem just with us that there's a forgetting, that there's a obscurity, that there's a withdrawal, that it's mixed with clarity concealment everything we discussed in the previous division is that merely subjective or rather is it not what Heidegger is saying here something stemming from being itself if in the manner just presented thinking encounters insurmountable difficulties and sees itself placed into a situation where there's no way out then it can yet deliver itself from peril in the way previous thinking has done We've already refrained from the nearest available technique of discerning a contradiction and playing, so to speak, with a paradox, okay, a shell game of formal concepts. For relinquishing thought is the most deplorable way for thought to accomplish its task. And moving into this conceptual formalism would be an example of that, of relinquishing thought. Nevertheless, according to the way of thinking practiced until now in the otherwise usual questions of philosophy one could undertake still other and subsequent reflections in respect to the impasse now arrived at. In view of this situation where there's no way out, where on the one hand, being cannot be avoided, and on the other hand, investigating being immediately makes it into a being, and thus destroys its essence, one gives up the question of being altogether and declares it to be a pseudo-question. You may know, I think, analytical philosophers who take an approach something like that, Or else, Heidegger continues, one decides to acknowledge the now imposed impasse, or aporia. One must then come to terms with it in some way. In such cases, the popular technique of making a virtue of necessity offers itself as a salvation. Accordingly, we could say in respect to our impasse that being itself forces us into this situation with no way out and even brings it about. Therefore, being would show itself to be what is represented as at once both unavoidable Because it's always there in your speaking, and yet ungraspable, because in speaking about it, you seem to make it a being. What it shows itself to be in this way, this impasse, is precisely its essence. The impasse that being brings with it is being's own mark of distinction. Therefore, let us take the impasse as the predicate with whose help the decisive assertion about being can be won. It states being is every time, with every attempt to think it, converted into a being and thus destroyed in its essence. And yet, being as distinguished from all beings cannot be denied. Being has just this kind of essence. It brings human thinking into an impasse. When we know that, we already know something essential about being. I'm going to continue. I just want to say hello to everybody who's here. Great to be with you. Nice to see you. Thanks for the comments. I hope you're enjoying this. Do we truly know something essential about being or do we merely discern what happens to us and our thinking when we try to comprehend being? Let me restate that. We have this impasse, we just said. On one hand, the inevitability of being. On the other hand, every time we try to talk about it, we drag it into beings. That being puts us in that impasse. Does that say something only about ourselves or does that say something about being itself or both? As he puts it, again, do we truly know something essential about being in that, or do we merely discern what happens to us and our thinking when we try to comprehend being? So, question. Indeed, the only thing we attain is an insight into our capacity to comprehend being. As long as we let it rest with an account of the aforementioned impasse, we ascertain an aporia. With this determination, which looks like an important insight, we close our eyes to the abode in which, despite all looking away, we remain. For we lay a claim to being in all our comportments toward beings. But we can still consider another possible attitude where we neither close our eyes to the impasse nor pass it. And, excuse me, nor pass it and its discernment off as the ultimate culmination of wisdom. Where we actually first look around in this situation where there's no way out and banish all haste to escape from it. So Heidegger is saying, look, we have the seporia, but don't rest on the laurels of that insight don't leave it at that that wow i had a breakthrough insight into being being is that which puts me into the seporia now i can go fishing or whatever go play tennis (sighs) we're not done yet heidegger says in saying something about being we make it into a being and thus cast it away but being has already cast itself toward us casting away and at the same time casting toward no way out in any direction we're stuck here What if the absence of every way out were a sign that we may no longer think of ways out, and that means we first establish a footing and become at home in this supposedly impassable place, instead of chasing after the usual escape routes? What if the escape routes we lay claim to stem from claims that remain inappropriate to the essence of being and originate from our passion for beings? So it seems like we're at an impasse, seems like we're stuck, seems like we've reached an aporia, we kind of give up. Hadir says, wait, what if the impasse into which being places us when we want to comprehend it must first be perceived as a sign that points toward where we are already placed in principle since we comport ourselves toward beings? Let's try to make more sense of what he's getting at here. This place means, he continues, a still concealed abode to which the essence of our history owes its origin. We do not enter this abode as long as we try to make it discernible through a historiological depiction, I'll explain this in a second, a historiological depiction of historiologically recognizable happenings. In other words, you can't look at an encyclopedia of Greek culture and understand the abode we're in. You can't look over a past history of just things that happened, influences, causes, okay? Your typical type of history book will not give you access to the still concealed abode to which the essence of our history owes its origin. We need a breakthrough into the ontological dimension here. What if we did not know where we are and who we are? What if all previous answers to the questions of who we are were merely based upon the repeated application of an answer given long ago, an answer that does not at all correspond to what is perhaps asked in the question, now touched upon, of who we are. Incidentally, you may be surprised how important this question, who are we, is in Heidegger's writings, for example, right in the very beginning of the first available black notebook. For we do not now ask about ourselves as human, quote-unquote, Assuming we understand this name and its traditional meaning. According to this meaning, man is a kind of organism, animal, zoon, zo- that exists among others on the inhabited earth and in the universe. Like if I ask you, who are you? I'm a human being. And you have an evolutionary approach to who you are, to where you are. You're on this little speck of cosmic dirt called the earth. You're an organism. You evolved from some other organism. And you can trace that all the way back and all the way forward to the heat death of the universe or whatever, right? So you have sort of an implied history of humanity when you have a certain answer to the question who we are. Again, according to this meaning, man is a kind of organism that exists among others on the inhabited earth and in the universe. We know this organism, especially since we ourselves are of this type. There's a whole contingent of quote-unquote sciences that give information about this organism named man, and we collect them together under the name anthropology. There are books with presumptuous titles, for example, man, that claim to know who man is, as if the opinion of the American pseudo-philosophy, which contemporary German science all too keenly adopts, already presented the truth about man. We're free to locate this organism, man, in the most varied, narrower, or broader domains, for example, within the narrower or broader spheres of his everyday activities, or within the wildest domain of the earth, where he's regarded as one orb, sorry, where it is regarded as one orb, among millions of others in the universe, Nietzsche, as some of you may know, says in the beginning of the essay on truth and lies in a non-moral sense, the following quote: "Once upon a time, in some out-of-the-way corner of that universe, which is dispersed into numberless twinkling solar systems, there was a star upon which clever beasts invented knowing." That was the most arrogant and mendacious minute of world history. But nevertheless, it was only a minute. After nature had drawn a few breaths, the star cooled and congealed, and the clever beasts had to die, unquote. Man, an animal appearing in nature, fitted out with cleverness, reason, animal rationale, Heidegger writes, the rational animal, okay? He writes in Latin, man, the rational animal. So let's go back for a minute. Let's go back for a minute here. He said, we're in some concealed abode. We don't know what it is. Maybe we don't have an answer to the question who we are. And we can't answer it on the basis of the old answer that man is the rational animal. A clever beast on this star in the corner of the universe that before too long will just disappear. We're not asking here about man as a natural entity, Heidegger continues nor about man as a rational entity which is the same we're not at all asking about man i hope you now will get what he's about to say given what we've covered in previous live streams we're not we are not at all asking about man as a being found among other beings if you treat man as a rational animal in his animality he is one among the animal beings But if you're trying to understand man not as one among the beings, you will not be interpreting him in terms of his animality. You see that? Rather, in terms of our openness to being slash nothing. Something totally different. All right. So let me uh, pick up here. We are asking about that entity named man in such a way that we bring only this into experience as his sole determination that he stands in an abode laid out by being itself. That means in such an abode that until now, with the assistance of usual ways of thinking, we could only call an impasse. We now experience humanity in an abode where being reveals its inescapability as what is cast toward us and therein reveals its inviolability. So we had this impasse, we had this aporia. We thought, okay, just an unsolvable problem insoluble problem we move on we move on to our practical affairs heidegger says wait a minute don't move on to your practical affairs just yet the fact that you're faced with that aporia the fact that you stand in this abode it could tell you something about who you are that is distinct from the interpretation of the human being as a rational animal and here you could say if we're following heidegger's reasoning really throwing yourself into it we're on the cusp in principle of what he calls the essential transformation of the human being. If we're calling the definition of man as a rational animal into question on the basis of the distinction between being and beings, this distinction that has now brought us to this aporia. We experience, Heidegger continues, an abode where being gives itself up in its own self-destruction, so to speak. When being immediately becomes a being through all representing and thinking of it. We experience this, that means we rid ourselves of the apparent possibilities for avoiding this abode. We begin by renouncing the attempt to find support through any kind of appeal to this or that being in order to have done with being, we're sticking with the aporia, we're sticking with the problem, or to put forward an excuse so that we would not have to ask about being in the first place. We're not doing some sort of automatic recoil toward the world of practical necessities. Nonetheless, we do not deny that the experience of this abode contains an exacting expectation that cannot be assessed according to the usual demands placed upon quote-unquote reflection. The exacting expectation of such an experience does not stem from us as if it were merely the result of our deliberations, concocted from some philosophical standpoint. This demand to experience the abode of historical man, alluded to above, originates from a claim of being itself where the perdurance of man himself lies anchored these are these are i would say reflections that are forcing you to go into difficult territory but if you have been following along and if you haven't been that's fine if you just showed up here hello welcome good to be with you but if you've been following along since the beginning of heidegger's book you hopefully can see where he started you and where gradually he has led you to we started with the idea that our origin is in the Greek beginning, not understood as something that just lies behind us as the past, but as something that, as it were, projected the future we're still living into because it determined our understanding of the nature of being. He's given us this reflection on the phrase, taken into care beings as a whole, the distinction between being and beings, and now the aporia, that somehow being is always there for us, we can't get rid of it, and it's never there for us because whenever we speak about it, we drag it into the realm of beings. And that's where we're situated. And that, our situation, tells us something crucial about who we are, that we're not just the rational animal. We're not just one among the beings. The exacting expectation of such an experience does not stem from us, concocted from some philosophical standpoint. It's not Heidegger's theory This demand to experience the abode of historical man alluded to above originates, to repeat, from a claim of being itself. The claim comes from the still concealed, you saw being conceals itself, the still concealed essence of history. Hence, this demand to experience the essential abode of historical man is strange, as I think you would admit. We should in no respect minimize this strangeness. We want to hold it fast, and that means, first of all, we want to concede that we never experience the slightest thing about the essential abode of historical man, arbitrarily and unprepared, never unbidden, and never through the aid of a mere curiosity that sudden arises in us. It's not likely that somebody who just happens to be going about their daily affairs will suddenly take a great interest in the distinction between being and beings and the aporia that we've been discussing. We admit that for such an experience of history, we need history itself to make us remember and to give us hints for reflection. Such a reflection grants us remembrance of the first inception of Western thought. That takes us back to the Greek inception, back to the Greek origin. Why that is so, only this inception itself can tell us, provided we allow ourselves to be told something essential. So Heidegger wants us to get to think, and he's going to continue to guide us in that direction, about the Greek origin of philosophy as something that holds still a claim over us, but that you couldn't trace through just an encyclopedia of philosophical influences. As I say, we need to have a breakthrough into how the first Greek thinkers thought the distinction between being and beings and why somehow the, the how could you put it? The domain that they opened up in that thinking is still the one in which we find ourselves. I would like to thank uh william and bruce for the super chats great to see you guys thank you for being here i appreciate the support very much and i hope uh, everybody else is enjoying heidegger as well heidegger's basic concepts short but very rich very dense and very powerful if you take the time to work through it i'm trying to give you a little bit of a advantage in that so now heidegger turns to the following remembrance into the first inception of western thinking is reflection upon being is grasping the ground. That's the, name, that's the name of this section. For many reasons, certainly, we are immediately overtaken by a series of partially familiar considerations, two of which should be mentioned but not discussed in detail. People will say, the first inception of Western thinking is unattainable for us. And if it were historiologically attainable, it would remain inoperative. What is making present something long past supposed to accomplish for us? You can imagine that kind of thing. In the realm of political philosophy, it's like, what are we going to learn about today by reading Plato and Aristotle? Now, I've tried to show you in my other live streams and courses that, in fact, you can learn a lot about today reading Plato and Aristotle, but the objection is we're here and now. They were then and there. What could the relevance possibly be? of what was so long ago maybe so far away from us to the here and now so as heidegger puts it in this context what is making present something long past supposed to accomplish for us indeed if this making present pertained only to a being that previously was and is now no longer if this making present pertained to a sequence of thought acts carried out by thinkers who lived in the past then would we then we would be fixing our search upon something that has disappeared okay, I'll explain this for you in, in a minute. However, we do not want to make a past being live again in the present. Our goal is not to resurrect something dead. On the contrary, we want to become aware of being. In reflection, we remember being and the way it inceptively presences, the way being originated, inceptively, to thought, forethought, thought, in thought, And presence is still as the inception without thereby ever becoming a present being. It's as though being is the eternal wellspring. And that means if it was the eternal wellspring, it nourished and watered certain thoughts and certain sayings back then. And it's not like the well has run dry. It's the perpetual wellspring. But we can gain insight into it if we attend to, you know, its expression in the past. We're not dealing with something dead and gone. Does that kind of make sense? The inception is certainly something that has been, but not something past. I'm going to have to make a little detour here in a minute because Alexander Dugan, in the book, The Rise of the Fourth Political Theory, has a section on conservatism which deals with this distinction. In fact, The inception is certainly something that has been, but not something past. So you have, as it were, two modalities of that which comes before us, like behind us, let's say. The past, the past like that which has passed away, and that which has been like the expression of the eternal wellspring in one temporal direction. It's tricky, okay? I really think it's nice to read what Dugan writes about it in The Rise of the Fourth Political Theory, stemming obviously from these Heideggerian reflections. What has been, what is, and what shall be, those are modalities of being. The past as something that just fades away, that's distinct, that's different. So Heidegger's orienting us not just towards the past as something that passes away, something dead and gone, old, antique, outdated, behind us, but rather he's orienting us towards the inception of our history as it expresses the, wellspring so to speak of being uh all right what is past he says is always a no longer being okay it's passed out of being it's no longer being but what has been is being that still presences but is concealed in its incipients the concealedness of the inception does not mean the inception has been covered over It implies only the peculiarity of an inception that first strikes us from its nearness that cannot be experienced in the realm of what is self-evident. So the self-evident and the concealed, they're not the same. Something is self-evident to you, it's obvious right away. Something that is concealed, it's not obvious to you right away. In fact, you may not even see that there's something there at first glance. Perhaps this inception of being is closer to us than everything we know and allow as the nearest. I'll say something about this too in a minute. Closer that is than all beings, which, as actual, seem to absorb into themselves and rule over everything. Do even need an explanation for that? Maybe the maybe being is closer to us than all beings. It seems like here's my pen. It's a little bit further, a little bit closer, a little bit closer, a little bit closer. You know, maybe I can even put it like um, you know under my skin or on my skin, tattoo it or embed it, and it seems like it's really close. No, being is always closer to us than any of the beings. Perhaps. Perhaps this inception of being is closer to us than everything we know and allow as the nearest. The past is past. That means the former beings are no longer beings. You got to get this. These are very important, but not super easy distinctions. The former beings are no longer beings. They're, so to speak, dead and gone. All historiology, calculation with the past relationships among beings, deals with beings that are no longer, like a, okay, deals with beings that are no longer. No historiological presentation, no account of history in the ordinary way of like a history book, an encyclopedia type presentation, no historiological presentation is ever capable of making a former being into the being it was. Everything past is only something that has passed away, but the passing away of beings occurs in the essential realm of being. This does not, of course, subsist somewhere in itself, but is what is properly historical in the past, the imperishable. And that means it is an incipiently having been and incipiently presencing again. Let me pause for a minute. I'm going to try to give you an image. This image is distorting. This image is not exactly 100% one-to-one correspondence with what Heidegger's writing but it gives you something. Here's time, the passage. Here's one view of the passage of time. Past, present, future. Here's something in the present. Time passes. This dies. It's dead and gone. It's buried. It's dispersed. It's whatever it is, okay? The timeline of past, present, and future. Passing from the future into the present, into the past, and so to speak, out of existence. Like I said, it's an image. It's not going to give you everything perfectly. That's one view, What is past, beings, and when they're past, they're past. You're not going to bring them back into the present. But separately from that, you have the modalities of being itself. Has been, is, will be. Those are, as it were, structural, temporally structural modalities of being. Has been is like a compartment that's always there. Is is like a compartment that's always there. Will be is like a compartment that's always there. And being, so to speak, spans itself out structurally into these three components. Has been, is, will be. And within that structure, there's no coming to be and passing away. Again, it's an image, it's rough, but it's meant to generate an intuition for you. Whereas on the timeline, there is coming to be, being, and passing away. Okay. So here some actions taking place, but it's taking place within this temporalized structure. And Heidegger wants us to go back to the inception of our history. It doesn't mean we're going back on the timeline to the dead and gone among the beings. It means we're trying to bring into relief for ourselves the temporal the temporalized structure of being as that which has been okay, if that contributed something to your understanding, I'm very glad. If it didn't and it confused you, then sit with it or ignore it. I added that to the text for the sake of trying to generate some intuitive understanding. No historiological presentation to repeat is ever capable of making a former being into the being it was. Everything past is only something that has passed away. That's the horizontal timeline here. But the passing away of being occurs in the essential realm of being. That's the temporally spanned out structure that I tried to give you with my hands there. This does not, of course, subsist somewhere in itself, but is what is properly historical in the past, the imperishable, and that means it is an incipiently having been and an incipiently presencing again. Remembrance of the inception is not concerned with beings and what is past. We're not trying to restore Greek culture in the sense of we want new uh, pillars like they had and new statues like they had. We're not orienting ourselves towards the beings of the past, but rather with what has been. And that means with what still presences being because what has been and what still presences are in my formulation for the sake of understanding the temporalized structure of being itself. Perhaps the inception continues to appear for the most part so completely as something unattainable because it is overly close so that we have continually overlooked it due to its nearness. It's like you're looking for your glasses and they're on your head. Perhaps it belongs to the peculiarity or on your nose. uh, Perhaps it belongs to the peculiarity of the abode in which our historical essence remains bound that, though we certainly do not lack sight and sense for the closest of all proximities, sight and sense are nevertheless suppressed and suppressed by the power of the actual, which has presumed to become not only the measure for each respective being, but for being. Here, adjacently to heidegger's reflection you have a nice statement by leo strauss which will convey something of the point which is that we have the difference between the loudspeaker and the still small voice the loudspeaker here is the power of the actual the still small voice is the presence of being that we can still attend to to be sure, we would be deluded if we wanted to deny that every attempt to bring the remembrance of the first inception of Western thinking to a decision, directly and without preparation, belongs to the realm of fantasy. In other words, you can't just do this, quote-unquote, directly and without preparation. We will therefore forego any extensive justifications of such an attempt. Besides, these justifications, in advance of any attempt, always remain meaningless if the attempt at such a remembrance is not actually first carried out. We must go even further and immediately admit that such a remembering return into the first inception of Western thinking brings with it all the signs of violence. To think back into the inception as what has been and still presences, into what alone therefore has a yet to come, because a casting toward being belongs to its essence, to remember into this inception means to gather all reflection toward the ground, to grasp the ground. In my little image designed for understanding, We have the what has been, what is, and what shall be as the structural temporalization of being itself. We're trying to think into the ground. We're trying to think into the root, into the source, into the wellspring, into the origin. What ground means here, we find out most easily from the usage that speaks of a foreground, a background, and a middle ground to touch only upon the spatial. Here, ground is the inclusion that gathers out of itself and into itself A gathering that grants the open where all beings are. Ground means being itself, and this is the inception. Okay, that's difficult. One thing, again, about the openness. When Heidegger writes out the openness in which all beings are, I think you can have immediate access in some way to that, not just as an idea in your head, but you are in an openness. A world is there for you, and you've never been a worldless subject. And the things that you call things and calculate and manipulate and deal with, they are in that openness. For Heidegger, that's not trivial. In fact, in the book, Being in Time, he dedicates significant attention to clarifying the mode in which we're in a world that's open for us. Okay, so that openness is granted to us and these formulations, I know, verge on the mystical, the poetic, the obscure, and all of that, and nevertheless, it's getting close to what Heidegger means by being. To repeat here, ground means being itself, and this is the inception. So that actually takes us to the, uh, to the end of this section on being and man, well, up to the recapitulation. I haven't been reading all the recapitulations, but I have a bit more time before my kids come home from school, and I'm enjoying the time together here this is a relatively short section so i do want actually to read the recapitulation to you the discordant essence in the relation of man to being the casting toward and casting away of being remember being is cast toward us but we cast being away the guide words which we covered in the previous division the previous video the guide words say of being every time being is something being is a surplus is concealment is liberation being is this and that. That about which we say it is, is thereby addressed as a being. To say of being that it being is unintentionally converts being into a being. People who have studied with me before Plato's Republic know that this comes up in the cave allegory, for example, with the idea of the good. Because the good is beyond being, the ideas are beings. So when you say the idea of the good, you've taken what's beyond being and you've beingified it. You've made it one of the beings and that causes all kinds of uh poses all kinds of problems for heidegger so here he says we do this automatically in our speaking like we did it in the last division when we used all these formulations being is concealment being is liberation to say of being that it being is unintentionally converts being into a being saying thus speaks as if it knew nothing of being being is cast away in saying when we talk about being we cast being away and we drag it through the mud of beings through the word about being, being is cast away. Uh, through every word about being. This casting away of being, however, can never relinquish being. So we cast it away. Nevertheless, it's there. Like in that Simpsons meme where Mo throws out that, what's that guy's name? He throws him out and then he come, he's, on the other, he's on the inside anyways. We cast being out and it's on the other side anyways. You know what I mean? If you don't know what I mean, don't worry about it. For being has cast itself toward us as the light in which a being always appears as a being furthermore we're incapable of encountering this casting toward in such a way that it could ever become irrelevant since we never in our comportment toward beings experience their being as if it were a being among the rest okay it's just restating something that we've covered here i'm not going to elaborate on it further but i want to go on in case we do get something new here the casting toward of being and the casting away of being are equally essential neither can push the other into essencelessness it's not like a tug of rope where one side wins We ourselves can initiate nothing against beings casting toward, and nor do we want to. At the same time, however, being withdraws from us when we attempt to actually say it. We then refer only to beings. Being has singularly burst open our own human essence. We belong to being and yet not. We reside in the realm of being and yet are not directly allowed in. We are, as it were, homeless in our own most homeland, assuming we may thus name our own essence. We reside in a realm that is constantly permeated by the casting toward and the casting away of being. To be sure, we hardly ever pay attention to this characteristic of our abode, but we now ask where are we there when we are thus placed into such an abode? The answer in terms of the history of being says heidegger writes in being there da sign da sign names this abode is this abode only a strange addition to our otherwise univocally determined and ultimately secured human essence an essence whose situation can indeed be historiologically summed up and depicted or is this abode in being okay cast toward us cast away from us the aporia we must say it, but we can't say it. All of that is this abode in being that we're in and wherefrom the essential mode, essential rank, and essential primordiality of our historical human essence can always for the first time and every time differently decide themselves. If it were so, we would remain away from the essential decision about ourselves as long as we disavow this abode in being and in its place register only situations of humanity that are intellectual and taken from the history of ideas. In other words, if you ignore this problem, this aporia that Heidegger has brought to our attention, he says, and if this aporia tells us something crucial about our essential place, our essential situation, then we're avoiding it whenever we only deal with something like an encyclopedic account of intellectual influences and relationships. Oh, did Heidegger read Kierkegaard? Did Kierkegaard read Schopenhauer? Did Schopenhauer read whatever, right? All of that is avoiding access to this essential realm. For Heidegger, Then the question would be whether man has ever been decisively given over into the realm of decision, belonging to his own essence, so that he shares in the grounding of his historical essence and does not merely busy himself with his quote-unquote historical missions. Then it would be completely doubtful whether we can already know who we are. Remember what he said in the introduction? The questions are closed off to us if we think we already know. Then it would be completely doubtful whether we can already know who we are whether we can know this at all with the present claims of thinking. Then the long familiar acquaintance with man common to everyone, everyone who thinks they know so clearly who and what man is, would be no guarantee that man holds himself in the right position to ask in an adequate, essentially legitimate way who he is, not even to mention the ability to find an answer that would possess the sustaining power to bring the essence of man to its fulfillment in a historical humanity. In short, you can't avoid thinking about the aporia, trying to understand it, enter into it, get your abode, break through to the realm of Dasein. Are we not putting artificial and contrived obstacles in the way? Heidegger asks, because now in the reflection upon being, we have found the relation of being to man so ambivalent. But let us leave aside this discordant essence in the relation of man to being, After all, what can disturb us about the fact that being casts itself toward us and we immediately cast it away, even though we lay claim to it? Hopefully you understand that more now than you did at the start of the stream. Let us completely leave aside the relation of man to being. Let us consider what ordinarily and hastily suffices for the moment. So now he's going to give us a new reflection. If we consider the place of man within beings, then at once a reassuring situation shows itself. The essence of man has been decided long ago. Namely, man is an organism, and indeed an organism that can invent, build, and make use of machines, an organism that can reckon with things, an organism that can put everything whatsoever into its calculation and computation, into the ratio. Man is the organism with the gift of reason. Therefore, a man can demand that everything in the world happen logically. In this demand that there be a world of reason, a danger for this organism man might reveal itself, i.e. that the organism deifies reason as first happened already in the course of modernity in the first French Revolution. But the organism, quote-unquote man, can only confront this danger when it does not become apparent in the mere calculation of life, but gives life itself an open course for its stream. Life is not for man an object standing opposite him, Life is also not for man a process running its course behind him. Rather, life is what life itself accomplishes, enjoys, survives, and what, like a river, it guides through itself and carries by its own stream. Life is, as they have said and taught since the 19th century, lived experience. Erlebnis is the German phrase given here. And life is not only occasionally a lived experience, But a continuous chain of lived experiences, a humanity guided by reason will adjust its computation to the fact that this chain of lived experiences never ends. Thus, it can get to the point where life veritably overflows with lived experiences. We do not by any means have to limit ourselves to mere lived experiences. One can capture them in reports. One already learns this out of school. In fact, you can do Facebook stories about them and TikTok stories and YouTube stories, and you can have your lived experiences be your avatar and represent your whole life. Of course, here the opposite danger arises for the rational organism named man. Not that reason now tumbles over itself, but that everything is still only what is lived. Like, hey man, abandon your rationality, let's go to this music festival, we'll have the lived experience, that's going to be more real than what we thought with our reason. But if the right balance between the calculability of life and the drunkenness of lived experience belonging to life's urge is found... Indeed, even if this balance cannot immediately be found in all places and at all times, it is nevertheless clearly shown that the essence of man is securely delimited. Man is the presencing animal. Again, rational animal. So if you've defined man as the rational animal, you can double down on his rationality or you can reject that and double down on his animality and on his lived experiences, but you're still operating within the definition of man as a rational animal. Besides, which as you can see, Heidegger is calling into question. Besides, today a large contingent of sciences stands at the disposal of the secured human essence, all of which provide information about man. If this sounds a little bit like a repetition, don't forget, we're in the recapitulation section. Today we have anthropology. How should we not know who man is? For a long time now, we've had the diploma in mechanical engineering, electronics, sewage and waste disposal, and similar things. We have a diploma in political economy, and lately the diploma in forestry, and now we're getting the diploma in psychology. Everyone can go be an expert on the human soul by taking a diploma in psychology. Soon we'll, we will be able. See what you think about this. Soon we will be able to read off of tables and graphs what the Americans have clearly sought for decades by means of the psychology diploma: the determination of what man is and how he can be most efficiently and effectively used in the most appropriate place without loss of time or energy. Okay, man as a data set that has been optimized for efficiency. But perhaps the question of who man is has already been decided before all psychology diplomas. Anthropology and psychology diplomas only make organized use of what has been decided. You get this point? Psychology and anthropology are only possible on the basis of a predetermined answer to the question of the being of man, namely man as rational animal. On that basis, you can proceed with anthropology, you can proceed with psychology. He's taken us down to that basis and having us reconsider it. That he calls the decision. The fundamental determination of being as it concerns us is what he calls decision. It's not like I'm going to decide what I'm going to eat for dinner tonight. Anthropology and psychology diplomas only make organized use of what has been decided. The decision is the one that has been long familiar. In here in Latin, he writes, man is the rational animal. For this reason, because computation and reason are involved... Man is also capable of what an animal can never achieve, that is, he can sink below the animal. If humanity has thus been established in its essence, what is a reflection upon the relation of man into being supposed to accomplish? If man is a rational animal, why are we thinking about being? What's the point? Does not such reflection upon being run counter to every natural self-consciousness of man? I already know what I am. I'm a rational animal. Moreover, the the determination of man as rational animal does not exclude the possibility that the consideration of man will be expanded. One can examine man in his various spheres of life, thus in his relation to beings. So maybe we'll do, like, you know, the relationship between men and dolphins or uh, men and Martians. You know, you could expand the science of man on the basis of the definition of man as a rational animal. What's the issue? Why would you ever want to do more? Well, here we're now going to read the last page of this section on being in man and then stop. In fact, it's the last page of part one of basic concepts remembrance into the first inception is placement into still presencing being is grasping it as the ground reflection upon being is remembrance into the first inception of western thinking remembrance into the first inception remember not remembrance of you're not thinking of an object remembrance into you're being re you're being transposed captivated Remembrance into the first inception is a forethinking into the more incipient inception. Remembrance is no historiological activity with the past, as we've said, as if it wanted to make present from outside and from what is later, what earlier thinkers believed about being. We're not reading the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, nothing wrong, it's a good source, uh, account of what philosophers quote-unquote believed about being remembrance is placement into being itself okay hence you have to be open for essential transformation which still presences even though all previous beings are past remember the previous beings passed away but beings temporal structure still presences indeed even talk about placement into being is misleading because it suggests we are not yet placed into being while being yet remains closer to us than everything nearest and farther than everything farthest Okay, being as not being one of the beings is simultaneously closer and farther than any of the beings. We only appear to escape being in favor and for the sake of beings whose density fills every openness. Okay, like trying to fill boredom with activity. Hence, it is not first a matter of being placed into being. It is a matter of becoming aware of our essential abode in being and becoming genuinely aware of being beforehand. This is an exhortation to awareness. Becoming aware of being means something other than attempting to raise being into consciousness, okay? Because there's more to what we are than our being conscious. Moreover, this becoming aware is not a lost representation of what one vaguely does or does not imagine under the concept of being. As I've tried to say, we're not trying to represent a concept. To grasp being means grasping the ground. Here, grasping begriffen means being included in Begriffen verden, in being by being, okay? You're going, you're trying to put yourself into the arms of being. You're not trying to put being into your arms. Grasping means a transformation. Transformation, keep saying. Grasping means a transformation of humanity from out of its essential relation to being before that the readiness for such a change, before that the preparation for this readiness, Before that, attending to this preparation. Before that, the impulse to such a preparation. Before that, the first remembrance into being. Everything that can be attempted to this end remains preliminary. Okay? In some sense, these are, again, I'm getting off the vocabulary here, spiritual exercises, preparation. Everything that can be attempted to this end remains preliminary. But perhaps the preliminary, das for laufige, is also an extending in advance Okay, some things here with the German uh, word, but the preliminary is an extending in advance into a future of history. Only the initiating and incipient pertains to the future. What is present is always already past. Remember, our flat timeline, what's present is already past. It's gone, okay? It's always gone into, no, into, okay? Into the past, non-being, boom, out of the equation. But if we go to this structure, triangular as I showed it with my hands, then you have something that is not passing away. Only the in- initiating and incipient pertains to the future. What is present is always already in the past. The inception knows no haste. Whither should it hasten? Since everything incipient is only incipient if it can rest in itself. Reflection into the inception is thus also an unhurried thinking that never comes too late. How could it? And at best comes too early. And that takes us to the end of the section on being a man. I want to show you that the next part of Heidegger's basic concepts deals with a specific fragment of Anaximander, the incipient saying of being. In some sense, everything we've discussed so far in the introduction and in the three divisions has been preparatory. I admit it's difficult, but even if one or two things came through the cracks or even if one or two cracks started to form, I think all of that will be good as you revisit Heidegger, as you think about him and as you go about your daily life and find that, hey, wait a minute, something I heard from Heidegger's Basic Concepts stuck with me. Uh, I wanna thank everybody for being here. I probably will stop doing the Basic Concepts book now at the end of part one. I don't know that we're gonna do part uh, two. It's, yeah, we might. I might just stop here uh, and leave part two for you to do separately. But I wanna thank you for tuning in. Subscribe, like, share. If you think anybody will gain anything from this video series that I've done on the Basic Concepts, please share it with them. And uh, I do encourage you, if you wouldn't mind, take a look at millermanschool.com at some point for my courses. Good being with you. You now have these four videos, introduction, first, second, and third division. I hope you got something out of it. Good to see some familiar names. And uh, I'll see you in the next video. Take care, be well. If I don't stream again, have a nice Christmas and Hanukkah and holiday season. But if I do, then I'll see you before too long.